Please rise. Court is now in session. Justice Facts dissects the most notorious criminal cases making news today. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, here with decorated former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston. We have been up close and personal with serial killers, mass murderers, sexual predators, and terrorists. You name it, and we've seen it. From the crime scene, to the courtroom, to prison, even the death chamber. We take you behind the scenes into the dark drama surrounding these cases from a perspective that you would never experience on your own. Please be advised that some editions may contain graphic descriptions of violent crime. Here's our latest edition of Justice Facts. Justice Facts provides your current events in true crime. We devote this episode to the resurgence of anti-government militia groups. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, here with my co-host, former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston. In a nighttime raid on Wednesday, October 7th, the FBI arrested six men who allegedly plotted to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The Democrat has been the target of social media anger over her restrictions during the coronavirus pandemic. The FBI says the men affiliated with the Wolverine Watchmen planned to take Governor Whitmer hostage before the November election and put her on trial. As we say in the opening of Justice Facts, Bill and I have seen it all. Indeed, this is a rerun of what we witnessed in Waco. I covered the 51-day Branch Davidian siege and its fiery end on April 19, 1993. Bill prosecuted the Davidians for the murder of four federal agents. On the second anniversary of the deadly fire that ended the siege at the Branch Davidian compound outside Waco, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols blew up the Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City, killing 168 people injuring more than 680 others. Now, anti-government plans for domestic terrorism erupt 25 years later. Bill, why now and what drives them? It seems like when individuals or groups of individuals believe that their rights are being taken away or there's a threat that their rights, particularly Second Amendment rights, are going to be taken away. <clears throat> they seem to start bubbling up toward the surface. Um, now, many people, normal thinking people, would say, golly, I'm going to vote a different way. I'm going to uh, write a letter. I'm going to form a group that goes to a town hall meeting, <clears throat> which is an, the American way of protesting such and changing things. But uh, there are those on the fringe that decide to militarize and that's what apparently happened here but it typically you see it more in a democratic administration or or a uh, looming democratic administration in my experience president clinton uh, his time had a great deal of it well of course it was during his administration that uh, the siege in waco the branch davidians occurred and then in december 1994 after that i met a young man named Ron Cole in Waco. 
He'd been arrested on gun charges. He was trying to uh, regain control of Mount Carmel from rival Davidians. Do you re- you remember him? That I do. I remember him <clears throat> as being. Uh, some people said a you know a want to be a Johnny Come Lately David Koresh, uh, a self proclaimed new leader. Yes. And so when I met him, he say, he had evolved into believing he was the uh, the resurrected David Koresh. He had gotten Koresh's old leather motorcycle jacket with his emblem on the back and actually had gotten his uh, souped-up black Mustang. and had just Camaro, t- Camaro. Oh, was it a Camaro? Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. And, he, yeah, he'd taken on this, this whole aura that he w- was him, and he, he'd let his hair grow out and all. And so, you know, I remember he told me he used to believe the Word of God should be defended by the sword. Um he had come down to Waco from Boulder, Colorado, but it had been, I was fascinated by this whole thing that he believed he was, he was the man. And he, um, you know, this had been two years since the Branch Davidian siege, but you know what I was starting to learn from him, what was all this anger and paranoia that, that had come out of anti-government groups. Um, and he was warning of an explosion of anger, and I actually use that term to describe a series I did after the Oklahoma City bombings. But you know, he had this—he'd become part of a cottage in- industry of conspiracy theories. He had a booklet uh, titled "Sinister Twilight," and he had a video titled "Day 51," and he compared the Branch Davidians to like an attack on a village of innocence in Vietnam. So they were gunned down in cold blood as, as they tried to escape. Um, and he said that the in all this, he said the ATF had raided this compound targeting two Davidian hackers who, and that they had discovered this secret um, shipments of arms captured in the desert storm uh, that had been given to street gangs. And then the gangs were going to work together with the ATF, and they were going to go in and confiscate the guns from law-abiding citizens across the country. And then they, they believed the federal government had trained all these elite troops, and they would descend on cities in black helicopters in the dead of night uh, and to take over, and they had secret codes on street signs that would guide them to their targets. Now, he was out making the round of uh, militia groups all over the country selling these videos and these pamphlets. Now, interestingly, I would learn at, from him after the bombing that a year earlier, a year before the bombing, at a Florida militia uh, gathering, he met Timothy McVeigh. And McVeigh was the uh, armed, uh, he was armed with an AK 47. He was the bodyguard for a Michigan militia member named Mark Kernicky. And Kernicky was speaking about how to get prepared for war with the government. So, you know, we saw, I didn't really kind of realize it until then that Waco was, had sort of galvanized all of, the, all of these groups. I mean, there were, it, they were concerned about gun rights, income tax protesters, private land rights, the Federal Reserve, conspiracies about the United Nations and the New World Order, and... Um, you know, they Waco had suddenly become the equivalent rallying cry of "Remember the Alamo." Now, you and the would later learn that McVeigh was 
down there during this. McVeigh was at a location of high ground, um, 10 miles away from the compound, but you could see the compound. And people would gather there to, to try to see what was going on. It was so far you had to have binoculars but to even see it. But you're right, Waco uh, became a rallying cry and a starting point, flashpoint, whatever you want to call it. And I, I personally, uh, I hate that, and it disturbs me to this day. Um, I was the primary uh, author of the search warrant for the Waco compound <clears throat> and worked with agents who believed there were automatic weapons and silencers and explosives at the compound. <clears throat> and that's what it was based on. The search warrant was based on. And one can easily and properly criticize much about the Waco. The raid itself, how it went, what what was done during it, how the FBI handled the siege, I criticized it myself and, and uh, to my detriment. But um, at any rate, no matter what, it it's always made me sick that <clears throat> the way that thing went down with agents dying and then ultimately the siege and the horrible fire and death, that... Uh, that led to a lot of other things. You know, we're not, we weren't, uh, that wasn't the embryo <clears throat> of the militia movement. I think you and I may have known about that too. Uh, when I was a very young federal prosecutor, uh, had no clue uh, about anything, I worked with the FBI one night that had come from, oh, I don't know, maybe in another state, a SWAT team and some investigators who were looking for a guy who was one of two primary subjects <clears throat> in a what was called a seditious conspiracy. And that involved a group that called themselves the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. They are out of Arkansas. And <clears throat> as I was informed when I think I wrote a search warrant maybe to, uh, to find a wanted person, as, as I recall. But as it was explained to me, this group similarly had all kinds of anti-government ideas. They believed many of the conspiracy theories that you just mentioned, and they believed it was their duty to stand up against the government. They believed the first step was to kidnap a federal judge in Arkansas, I think in Fort Smith. They were then going to, with cyanide, poison the water supply of the United States in Washington that is to say, in a hope to poison government enough government officials, enough members of Congress, that government, the U.S. government would be in disarray. They were going to withdraw then their group, their followers, to the northwestern United States where they would defend, I, sometimes it's called a race war, sometimes it's a class war, some people say it's a religious war, and they would be uh, in Idaho or western Montana, and they would be the true United States, and everybody else was, you know, good luck to you. But that, so way before the Davidians, there was that, and then there were different groups along the way, but you're right, it all, it all came to a boil after Waco because groups that think that way, that didn't see this for what it was, which was, a, which was an attempt to serve a search warrant, handled well or not, agents died. It was my job to prosecute those who killed the agents. Anyway, that's, that is kind of where it started, and it got worse and worse. Yeah, it just galvanized uh, what had been out there for years, 
for for years and collectively they they came together and then you know there was a there was a uh, Republican congressman Steve Stockman from Beaumont that had just been elected uh, shortly before the Oklahoma City bombing and he wrote an article for Guns and Ammo that wasn't published until after the bombing but uh, he really it really focused in on what was going on. He he claimed, this is a member of Congress claiming that the federal government, they'd murdered the Branch Davidians to win a ban on assault weapons. And he, he wrote, I'm going to quote, the Branch Davidians were executed in a particularly gruesome way, gas choked, and then incinerated. Wow. People that weren't there, that don't know how that whole thing went down, <clears throat> There's much speculation about it. Some of it reasonable, some of it wild and unfair mm-hmm. and crazy. Yeah. And if you speculate, particularly someone in a position of authority like that, you speculate enough, you'll punch the right buttons, check the right squares and boxes yes. on these nuts who decide, oh, I was right. My thinking was right. We have to do something yeah. about this. Uh, anything big that happens, like the Branch Davidian raid and the aftermath, it has a big, long, churning wake in history because it's such a big deal. I have suffered that. Uh, I mean, I have lived that, I guess is sure. better way to put it, because of I was so involved in it. My father was involved in uh, most of the legal work in the Jack Ruby case involving President Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald, and those matters regarding the assassination. Similarly, there's this long, churning wake, which exists till today, in that wake are all kinds of conspiracy theories. I mean, I think probably a good percentage of Americans think there was some sort of conspiracy regarding President Kennedy's assassination sure. yeah. because the simple facts that were presented at trial were are just too mm-hmm. they're just too easy. Uh, gosh, it had to be more to it. Similarly, uh, the Davidian case, unfortunately, the theories get whipped up because it just can't be that. It was yes. a raid that went wrong. It can't just be that the Davidians started their own fire. It can't be. Well, and that's and I, how people get worked yep. up and bad things happen again. And I arrived there among the first journalists to arrive after the shootout. And I was there for the 51-day siege on air live when uh, the fire broke out. And when the uh, they were using the uh, well, kind of tanks, tank repair right. vehicles, sure. to punch holes to put tear gas in. Uh, once you, I early on when I became acquainted with Koresh's apocalyptic vision, and I talked to theologians over at Baylor University, I never thought they were coming out. Right. You know, I really think thought they were going to have a self fulfilling prophecy, and um, you know, it became my belief afterwards that this was so mishandled by the FBI that it actually festered the conspiracy theories and all. And you might recall, I was the reporter who broke the story that the ATF leaders had lied about the uh, the raid. You know, they came out and claimed that the, the Davidians didn't know they were coming when, in fact, they did. Yeah, that again, so many mistakes were made. And, and looking back on it, they're, they're more uh, clear in the view. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, they ATF, a couple of bosses from ATF, Act like the element of surprise wasn't lost. They knew it was. Yeah. They went anyway. They uh, what should they have done? I don't know. Maybe surround it and yeah. ho- hope they'd come out. I I don't know. But yeah, a lot of mistakes were made, and with just a little 
um, distrust in, in the government or law enforcement, again, it festers up to something really bad, which probably led to yeah. – probably – I say led to it – probably set off McVeigh in a different way. And Oklahoma City, you know, that was thought to be, for the first half day or more, uh, radical Islamic terrorism. I was uh, that was April nineteenth, of course, a couple of years after. I was actually driving uh, in Texas and heard on the radio what had happened, and it was very early. They said there's been an explosion in Oklahoma City, and uh, it appears to be a bomb, and it's destroyed nearly the entire building. And I just within a few minutes called. I was still with the Justice Department. I called the Terrorism and Violent Crime Section of the Justice Department and spoke with one of their chiefs, and I said, have you heard? I'm sure you've heard what's happened in Oklahoma City. And she said, yes. And I said, ah, this really worries me that it's on the anniversary of, of our case. And she said, no, Bill, it has all the hallmarks. It looks like it is going to be Islamic uh, terrorism. And I didn't quarrel with her, but when I hung up the phone, I I pondered and mm-hmm. worried that, no, it's too coincidental. It happened on April 19th. And about that time, I was going on the air, going against the grain of everybody reporting, saying it was domestic terrorism. But let's pause for a moment for a message, and when we come back, we're going to pick up that day, April 19th, 1995. On April 19, 1995, the moment I heard about the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City, I knew the significance of that date, and I immediately thought, oh my God, Ron Cole has blown up the federal building because everything I'd been learning from Cole, and I'd seen he, he was even becoming more radicalized and extreme in his thinking. So I call Ron, and I said, Ron, are you in Oklahoma City? And he chuckled and said, uh, no, uh, I'm up in Boulder, Colorado, but finally someone has acted on my message. And what I realized, we would learn later, shortly later, that it was McVeigh, and, you know, McVeigh had heard that message at the militia meeting in South Florida, and he was hearing it other places. Um, And then so I set off doing a series about what was it, what, what was feeding all of this, and went up to Boulder, to see Ron, and uh, I get up there, and he's I go to him. He's he's on a radio show, being interviewed because now it's his moment, you know. So he says, uh, "quote We're feeling trapped, cornered, and if we say things that seem hard to believe or maybe irrational to the average person, it's only because we are so scared and so desperate. We don't know what to do." And then he turned to me in an interview and he said, look, today in America, people are being murdered by the government, and it seems to me that people at large have taken my advice, and hence the movement has come together in a fist. How troubling. Um, And again, it's one thing for people to be angry. It's one thing, in his case, frankly, to be a little mentally ill (laughs) and buy into Mm -hmm. some of these crazy theories. But when action is taken, and we don't realize sometimes, I think, uh, someone with the government, someone uh, with a voice, maybe an entertainer or an actor, 
who says something that is by its nature uh, a little hot, it it sometimes you don't realize people that are on the edge, that's all they need to go over the edge. And we never know, but perhaps McVeigh, you know, being in Waco and McVeigh being at the militia meetings you mentioned, that's all it took to push him over the edge. And, you know, Terry Nichols, one of his associates, was was in was from Michigan. And of course that's where this incident with the governor took place. I read a a law review article just yesterday that discussed the militia movement, the Second Amendment rights that they think they have, which they really don't, uh, because they're not of the government. They're private. Uh, at any rate, that article said that in the 90s, something like 80% of counties in Michigan had some sort of privatized militia movement going on. And again, uh, it happens everywhere. But the sportsmen in Michigan, people that just don't like being told what to do, which you know, a lot of really great people sure. don't like being told what to do. Yeah. Uh, but some of them, when they feel pushed to the edge, mm-hmm. then they organize, then they do something. And I think that's what happened with the governor. You know, uh, in the wake of the Murrow bombing, conspiracy theories went viral. I mean, they went wild. And uh, the basic one was that uh, even the public, believe that federal agents had blown up their own building and their own people to make militias a a foil for more gun control and a whole other range of things. And I went up to Washington, D.C. and interviewed the Committee for Waco Justice. I don't know if you came across them. And they were claiming that ATF and FBI agents uh, murdered the Davidians and they they'd they were calling for a congressional investigation in the wake of Oklahoma City. And uh, the uh, um, head of the group said, quote, Waco is a wake-up call to the fact that the government is much more out of control than we realize. And then I came across a group right here in Dallas called the Eyes of Texas. They, too, believed that the government had planted bombs in the federal building in a conspiracy to blame Militia groups. What, what? What is this fear that drives people this way? Because we're feeling it today. I'm afraid we we are, and perhaps from both sides of the aisle a little bit. You may, you have some. I hate to use the term right and left, but I don't know how else to say it. There are groups on the so-called left, on the fringe or far left, that believe that the government is out to get them and out of control, and there are groups like the Mm -hmm. Michigan group, that one would probably categorize as the far right or fringe right. And so it happens. I don't know why it happens. Uh, Normal and right-thinking people realize there are legitimate ways to deal with it, to change it, to influence Mm -hmm. the the government. People that are just a little bit paranoid or, frankly, I hate to say this. I'm getting into a field I'm not qualified to talk about, but uh, people with a little mental illness – uh, perhaps some paranoia uh, that exists, mm-hmm. that pre-exists, that's all they need. It justifies, it affirms their paranoid thoughts. Yeah. And of that group, there are a few, thankfully not very many, but a few that want to take action on it. Feel like Some feel like they're compelled to. They have a duty to take action. And that's, that's really troubling. You mentioned the one in Texas, you know, another group, 
uh, formed in Texas uh, post-Davidian was called the Republic of Texas Movement. And these, yes. frankly, these kooky people decided they would start their own Republic of Texas, going back to when Texas was a nation. They put together a some sort of little headquarters way down in the Rio Grande Valley, or actually the Big Bend area, <clears throat> ultimately had printed their own money yes, and uh, disregarded any other form of government in Texas. The Texas Rangers had to go try to arrest one of these nuts, got in a shootout with him uh, way down in uh, big, the Big Bend area of Texas. and I was there. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. it's it comes in all forms. So, you know, I did a series about them for Nightline with Ted Koppel and uh, spent time with Richard McLaren, oh boy, the leader of the group, who had this Einstein-like hairdo. <laughs> and uh, my youngest son at the time would, was watching on TV and he went, oh, that's the crazy scientist. <laughs> but McLaren, I truly believe, in the Republic of Texas, and you know what they were—the way they got in trouble—they were out filing liens against people That's left right. and right, claiming it was their property. <laughs> well, and that, people would then go in to refinance their mortgage or sell their home. They couldn't do it. This this lien is out there hanging on them. That's right. It was a deviously clever yes. little way to to be yeah. somebody. But yeah, they were they came in their minds, went back to about 1823. Of course, your family and mine both were in Texas before Texas was yes. a state, back yeah. when Texas was a nation. And so we get the historic significance of Texas and Texans thinking they're so great, but we don't really want to form our own militia, uh, print our own money, and put liens on everyone. So it takes a it takes a kind of a kooky uh, offshoot yes. of an idea and then someone willing to act upon it, and that's what McLaren did. Well, it, you know, so I... Did the stories, and, uh, you know, McLaren was kind of checking in with times. And I get this call on a weekend, an afternoon, and he said, well, it has started. What has started? Listen. And there's gunfire in the background. And it was like the, the Re Texas Revolution has started, and they were holed up out in the Big Bend country in West Texas, very remote, hilly, uh, and – they kicked off a siege, you know, and the Texas Rangers came in a handle. But what was interesting, I had all these back phone numbers for Richard. So he would call during the standoff, you know, talking about everything. And eventually uh, it ended without gunfire. Uh, the Rangers did a good job of negotiating, and he went to state prison. But, you know, he sure did drag a lot of other people you know, I think that's a down the rabbit hole. That's right. He oh, certainly. I think that's a testament that the concept of anti-government groups, militia groups, uh, independence groups can come from anywhere. Uh, McLaren's group would have looked like a bunch of old cowboys. Now they mm -hmm. were nutty. They weren't mm -hmm. exactly a bunch of calf ropers, but they were from that look. Then you have uh, groups that are always in camouflage and you know that yes. think of themselves as a state militia and then you have far left groups uh, that see is their function to sow chaos so it can come from anywhere right but they need they need something to light the fuse and I'm afraid today for many reasons the the covid situation and the government's response to it 
some people think it's perfect. Some people mm-hmm. think it's not enough. Some people think it's very heavy-handed, and it's in different states. You never know. That could be what sets the match to the fuse. The uh, issue of civil disturbance, otherwise riots and so forth, that could be what it takes. An election that's deemed to be fair or unfair could do it. So you don't know, and there isn't just one fuse. There may be a dozen or a hundred fuses out there. In Michigan, the governor's response, which a lot of the sportsmen particularly thought was heavy-handed, was enough to light a fuse that trailed down towards some dynamite, and the dynamite was a handful of mm-hmm. these kooky guys that decided, uh, based on the allegations, that they would take action. You know what I found interesting with the Republic of Texas and how it ended peacefully? Part did. Part didn't. Yeah. Well, but there, it was— I'm sorry. There, I think McCl- one of McLaren's guys was shot. Now, that was not the part you're from— your yeah. part with McLaren, correct? They got him in. Yeah, I think one of his guy, one of his guys, shot at a state police helicopter, and the Rangers returned fire and may have killed him. But my point of that is, he was uh, maybe a little more. T- he might have liked the idea, but not the gunfire. Well, I thought what was interesting is that they respected and talked with the Texas Rangers. I think if the FBI had been there, it would have been a war. That what was it about the Rangers? That's funny you say that. You know, uh, during the Branch Davidian case, during the siege, uh, there was a federal warrant for a particular Davidian that had was not in the compound but had been responsible for buying, a, uh, buying most of the firearms and the conversion kits and some of the other things that were deemed illegal. <clears throat> he fled up to the northwest to Haven Lake, Idaho area, uh, where there were some sympathizers uh, to his uh, way of thinking. And rather than sending the marshal service or the FBI to try to arrest him up there in that where the certain way of thinking about the government existed, we had a couple of Texas Rangers go up there, and they had um, discussions with some people on the edge of this uh, where the fugitive was, and they said, okay, we'll talk to you. The Rangers predate the United States' involvement with Texas, and that's correct. The Rangers go back to 1823 when a guy named Stephen F. Austin mm-hmm. uh, had a colony in Texas, yes. and they were to range around and protect the colony. So <clears throat> these guys in Idaho said the Rangers are legitimate. They predate Texas being a part of the United States. Their, act, they, their badges are good. However, the marshals, the FBI, those are all illegitimate. Those, they said, don't have credibility. They're not authorized by the Constitution. So, and, and ultimately, we were successful in getting this, this character out of there, getting him arrested, because the Rangers handled it. Well, so let's go back and pick up the trail after the Oklahoma City bombing. Part of that trail led up into uh, a compound in northwestern Arkansas, very remote up on the Oklahoma border, called Elohim City, which in partially in Hebrew means uh, the city of God, but it was it was the headquarters for this Christian identity movement group. And what had happened is that McVeigh, after he bought the or rented the Ryder truck that they used for the bombing, made a call there, and he was trying to reach a guy named Andy Strassmeyer. 
Strassmeyer had been a German soldier. He's a German citizen, but he was a security chief there. And um, Strassmeyer later back in Germany would claim that his grandfather had helped organize the uh, Nazi party. And then later after all this, back in Germany, he, he sort of, he claimed he vaguely remembered meeting McVeigh at a Tulsa gun show. But everybody thought there was significance to this. So I went up there with my crew and... Um, this is May 1995, and that, I mean, this is a remote place. It's six miles down a dirt road through the rolling hills of Arkansas. But there, I met there with 69-year-old uh, Robert Millar. Millar by, and I call it a cult, about 100 people there. Millar was called Grandpa and presided over everything. Now, he had founded it back in 1972, and... Um, they believe that whites of northern European extraction, rather than Jews, were God's chosen people. And they espouse that Jews are Satan's children and blacks are subhuman. Now, he'd been a, he'd been a spiritual advisor, and this is kind of where you come to James Ellison, who headed the Covenant Sword and Arm of the Lord, CSA, which also had been in northwestern Arkansas. And... Ellison was up there warning of a apocalypse, but they always believed there'd be an apocalypse, but they would emerge as the leaders of the nation and the world. But he was up there giving, uh, Ellison was, survival training and gun training and all. Now, interestingly, Millar was also a spiritual advisor to a white supremacist named Richard Snell. Snell was executed on April 19th, the same day of the Oklahoma City bombing, for shooting down a black state trooper. Everybody's really wondered about that. So when I got up there, uh, Millar put on a show. They had this gym, and all these young girls and uh, boys, the children of the cult, were dressed in lederhosen, and they put on this dance for him which had all, I felt like I was back at a Nazi party rally. And hanging, but hanging in the gym prominently, was the CSA flag that had been on Snell's casket. Uh, you know, so they did, uh, it was kind of, it was spooky. Did you feel like you might not get out of there? Well, it's, it's funny you say that, yes. And I, I had a code word with a crew uh, because... I was full aware of what happened to uh, the crew that with James Jones. You know, you never knew in these groups why they when they might decide you're you're the enemy, you're the the beast, as they say. So my code word was, uh, "Hey, I, I just got a page. <laughs> we had pagers. Hey, I just got a page. There's been a plane crash in uh, Little Rock. We got to go. Got to go right now." And I said. If any of the three of us feel that feeling you get, you feel things are going the right way, that's what, hmm. no matter any of the crew here, you say that, we're out. We're, we're moving. That we're was getting smart. Out of here. Yeah. That was smart. So that was our plan. And um, they, uh, th then that, in that moment kind of came a uh, young man, or they were in their early 20s, and his wife, they were from uh, Palestine. He'd been a prison guard, and they were up there, members of it. 
and they're talking to us now. Standing off in the distance, I light her, is this guy, paramilitary guy, all black and everything. I find out later, much later, that was Andy Strasbeier. He was still there. They were, they were claiming he wasn't there and doing anything. He was still there. He was the enforcer. And so the, the little girl, I mean, she just seemed so naive and all, leaned, leaned forward and whispered and said, I want to get out of here. And he heard it. And um, um, he came over and said, the only person you're to talk to is Grandpa. And he hustled him off. Goodness. And so he went the other direction. And uh, my crew and I, I said, that's a wrap. We, we hightailed it out of there. We didn't run or anything, but we just said, thank you. We've got, you know, appreciate you talking to us and all. And uh, we bugged out. Well, you never know. I mean, no, you don't know. it just takes something to snap and then it would be too late. Oh, yeah. And so it was, uh, it was quite an experience. But it, what, you know, all of these groups have in common is a apocalyptic vision. The world's coming to an end. The the government, big government, is behind it. Um, and it either is based on race. There's some divide. Yes. And they want to be on the right side, and they claim they yeah. are. Race or class or religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Oklahoma, I'm sorry, not Oklahoma City bomber, the uh, Olympic Park bomber, Eric Rudolph. That's right. He was... Uh, Arguably associated with the Christian identity movement, mm-hmm. uh, and he was anti. Um, yeah. Any, at any rate, but it just takes uh, some divide where people think they're we're on the right side, everyone else is on the wrong side, or yeah. we're going to heaven, but everyone else is going to hell. That sort of divide lends itself to a few people in the group that will take action to cause it to happen mm-hmm. during the Davidian case, there was a time when Vernon Howe, David Koresh had prophesied all this stuff about the end of the world, and one of the members finally said to him, you keep saying that, David, when? When? In other words, let's go. Yes. Let's have the end of the let's world. Let's trigger it. And so he yeah. he did. I mean, he they, they fulfill their own prophecies sometimes yeah. because they can't get it any other way. So, hey, I want to go back a minute. You reminded me when you brought up Eric Rudolph, the Olympic Park bombing. That poor security guard, uh, Richard, Richard Jewell, Jewell blamed for all this. So I, I, I got a story for you. So, you know, every reporter in the country is chasing this thing. And I called a source. It was an ATF agent. He was an ATF agent involved in the bo- uh, uh, investigation of the bombing in, in Oklahoma City. He actually, he was in the uh, bomb tech side. And he had reconstructed the Oklahoma City bombing the way they did it, rider truck, they took it to the desert, exploded it. You know. So he'd been a source for a number of years. And I just, I, I call him and just ask, do you know anything about this bomb? You know, he said, you're a bomb tech. Do you know anything about this? And he whispers, he said, I'm standing in Richard Jewell's apartment now. Oh, my. And he said, the FBI's in here ripping through everything. They got the wrong guy. Mm. He said, I, I've done what they haven't done. I talked to Richard Jewell. Do you know how many? He says, "You know how many bombers I've talked to in my career." I'm telling you, he's not it. Wow. This is not the guy. Not the guy. But I'm ATF, and they want nothing to do with me. 
they probably want to kick me out of here, but because I'm a bot, but you know, I'm in here to see if there's bomb stuff, but he called it, mm-hmm. he called it, but you know, they get on, it's that, they get on the tunnel vision, you know, and, and that's and what gets them in trouble with the public too. That's right. Well, it's tunnel vision with the back pressure of get it solved, get it solved, yeah. get it solved. But sometimes it, it just takes time or it takes someone that's not, doesn't have so much tunnel vision, but has a broad perspective where they can see all the possibilities. Mm-hmm. And then you have a better investigation usually when you're open-minded. You know, I think a thing that's contributing to what we've seen happen with the governor and in Michigan all is the public's loss of confidence in the news media. So I spent 30 years investigative reporter. Uh, it's not the same uh, reporting and ethics that I experienced. I left the mainstream in 2008. I've seen it turn into, um, you know, very slanted according to, to different political perspectives. But what I tell people is, look, they will ask me, is there bias? Is it the political bias? I said, no, it's money bias. What you've got to understand, these big media companies in New York, it's all about money. If, if they can make money off of pandering to the left or pandering to the right, they'll do it, and they are doing it. But I even, as an, invest, you know, an investigative reporter, it's tough to find, you know, like, I, I, where is the truth in all this? I've seen it in the pandemic reporting. You know, where is the truth? And I think when you have that kind of information vacuum, oh, boy. Right. Disinformation, and it can just feed these groups. People in our <clears throat> in our parents' generation could trust Huntley and Brinkley or Walter Cronkite yes. to give them pretty much what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's the news. Sort of like the BBC used yes. to say, I don't know if they still do, and now the news. And yeah. they would just tell you what happened. But you're right. When people can't trust that what they're hearing is a news, that it may actually be someone's opinion or a slant, then they don't know what to believe. And it, when you have distrust in government and the media, you have a lot of wandering souls that are looking for answers, and they may do something to come up with an answer. And that's yeah. what happened in Michigan. Well, let me give a little historical perspective. You said uh, Walter Cronkite, who was effectively known as Uncle Walter to people. Uh, just to give you about the times, Walter Cronkite went to Vietnam. War wasn't going well. He'd been a World War II war correspondent, flown B-17 missions, done it all. And he pronounced the war unwinnable. And when President Lyndon Johnson saw that on television, he looked at his aides and he said, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost the American people. And based on that event, Johnson decided not to run for re-election. Wow. He, it, he was just broken. And I, you know, I worked for a member of Congress later that was lifelong friends with Lyndon Johnson. He had shared the desk of Johnson's father in the Texas legislature, and Lyndon had been their errand boy, so they went way back. And we went to the ranch after retirement. And, boy, it had taken a toll on John, Johnson. He, he, he'd let his hair grow over his collar and everything. And you could just tell it had taken the life out of him. Um, the power of the media, and in that day, yes. that was certainly that was Cronkite's opinion. It was probably 
in retrospect, it probably was correct because of the way all that had gone and the way the domestic unrest was going. Yes. But yeah, that's right. So now we have that in spades. We have all sorts of news outlets expressing opinions about different things. And sometimes it drives uh, people into a polarized setting, and that's probably where we are. Well, you do have to put things in perspective. I've had friends calling me boy, alarmed and concerned about what they're seeing in the streets in Portland and all. And I said, uh, hey, you need to go back and read what happened in the streets in the 60s. You know, 100,000-plus fighting with the police in the streets of Washington, D.C., and outside the Democratic Convention in Chicago. We got through all that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I think I hope what we're doing on this show is helping to give perspective on all of that. Again, people probably are very concerned about this Michigan uh, plot. It's happened before. It's been handled by law enforcement. It's been squelched or snuffed out, and we move on. And hopefully enough right-thinking people realize how inappropriate, illegal, horrible this is, and we don't want to act that way. We have elections to handle that. Well, I do think in the current climate, We'll hear of another plot. I'm afraid we'll, so. We'll hear of something else because these things tend to feed each other. There are other fuses yeah. that are lying, waiting to be lit. Yeah, you know, I, I served on a, a panel that was studying domestic terrorism, and they had found that in the case of the uh, school shootings, that they tended to, mm. to feed other kids that were disaffected and had emotional problems. Yes. So it's probably not over. Probably not. Well, as... We've always said here, Justice Facts provides your current events and true crime and a unique perspective. And I think we've done that here today, and we're going to be back next week looking at whatever is making news and giving you the perspective of a former federal prosecutor and an investigative reporter. And I want to encourage you to go hear Bill on our other podcast, True Crime Reporter, a 15-part series where we're taking a look at the capture manhunt for serial killer Kenneth McDuff and Bill my hats off to you if you had not picked up the ball and run with it God knows how many women would have been murdered by this man because no one else was doing it so thank you thank you and hey tune in to true crime reporter it's on your favorite podcast app thank you that's justice facts Justice Facts is co-hosted by Robert Riggs and Bill Johnston. Associate producer, Siler Burr. Original music by Blair King. Social media producer, Grace Woodward. Publicity, Tim Livingston, PR. Graphics, Brian David Kerr Designs. Additional music by Stan Woodward. Justice Facts is a copyrighted production produced by True Crime Reporter.